Welcome to the second episode of Miskatonic University Radio, a podcast exploring fantasy flight games as Arkham Horror the Card Game. I'm Dane. And I'm Dan. Uh, and we are back after a completely planned, ahead of time, and intentional one-year hiatus. We're we're like a miraculous, uh, one of those like weird plants or flowers or something that like only <laughs> blooms after a year of like sleeping beneath earth. That's us. Right, you are, Dan. We're all excited to talk about the new stuff, and today we're going to be catching up on all the new developments by counting down our favorite scenarios released so far. Uh, word of caution, though, we might spoil anything up to the Forgotten Age. Uh, we This is just around the time that Threads of Fate came out, however, we have not played that yet. So we will not be discussing anything from that, and these are kind of like not really... Uh, I guess, factoring in the actual quality of the player cards either. Uh, we're just kind of talking about which ones were thematically and mechanically the coolest. Yeah, we're just talking about the scenarios. We're not actually talking about uh, player cards at all. Yeah, exactly. So I guess we'll just jump right into it, starting with Dan's fifth favorite scenario. Sure. So yeah, we're we're counting down. Uh, we each made a list of our five favorite scenarios so far, kind of ranked from five to one. There's definitely some overlap. There's a few scenarios that we both like. But we're going to sort of move up up the list and kind of uh, talk about why we like each of them. So number five on my list was Midnight Masks, which is the second scenario in the Night of the Zealot. So this is one of the ones from, from the core set, actually, which I really, really like. Definitely memorable. Yeah, I think I remember even the, you know, back when the game first came out and I was first playing it, you know, the after finishing the, the gathering, you get to Midnight Masks. And suddenly you get this really big, interesting map where there's a lot of locations. Uh, and one of the other sort of things that was fun about it is if you've played uh, Arkham Horror, the board game before that this card game is kind of based on, you get to see sort of some of those same locations and you get like a similar map. Mm, like, oh right, yeah, right. it's uh, I, I can't remember any of them now, but like, oh yeah, the Hibbs Roadhouse or whatever. I, I don't think Hibbs Roadhouse is actually in the thing. But, <laughs> <laughs> but there's Ma's boarding house and, and yeah, uh, there you go. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that was yeah, kind of sure, cool. Sure. And and also just it's like, oh, you know, you can go anywhere. You kind of have um, – I like that you have this objective. You need to try to – if anyone hasn't played it, which probably everybody has, you there's six cultists that you have to find. But it's kind of expected that you may not be able to find all of them. So you're just trying to get as many as possible. And that gives us right. this fun – because you have like a pretty strict time limit. Like you want to try to resign before midnight. So you're sort of, you're trying to maybe like push your luck, like, oh, we're, we're really close. We just need one more cultist. Uh, I don't know. But if we draw an Ancient Evils, then it might just end right now. And it's, it, it, you have these cool decisions. Ooh, to make. that card. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Do you like, do you like Midnight Masks? Midnight Masks is definitely up there for me. I don't think it quite makes it on my top five, but it's definitely one of my favorites just because it's, it's the first of the scenarios to really kind of change gears from the first scenario from, from the gathering in that it does have that emphasis on time. It's very, very different. And it kind of shows the flexibility of the game coming from the gathering where you had an exorbitant amount of time to figure out the game, to figure out the mechanics and everything. And then you jump straight into the streets, kind of opening the scope a little more. And then you're just, you have such little time to explore this bigger space. So you're feeling like that investigator that has to run around and make those visits to the specific places and, and make sure that you can find these people in, in time. Yeah, and it's definitely, um, you know, it, it rewards, you know, building your deck to be kind of like efficient at getting clues and moving around. It's also like this style of, of scenario we've actually seen, I think, repeated a couple of times. Like we've seen sort of this style of scenario where there's a big map with a lot of clues and you kind of have to quickly race around and get all the clues and like meet all the people or, or fight all the people. 
was kind of repeated in one of the Carcosa scenarios, um, right, right, right. the the Last King, which was kind of a different spin on it, which is cool. Like this is it's a it's kind of like an archetype that I'm happy to see them go back to, you know, per- periodically. But I th- I don't know if they've ever kind of done quite this combination of like time limit with that kind of uh with that kind of a structure. Yeah, and I mean it's also definitely the uh, I guess the benchmark for that kind of thing too, right? Right. You, you have all the all the Arkham locations, like you said, that everybody knows and remembers, and and you you're you definitely have those ultimatums. Um, there, I've played through that plenty of times, and and there are times where you have to say, well, are we going to take this guy, or are we going to go run over there and and use clues to deal with this person? There's just a lot of versatility in how you can deal with the scenario, but you only have that period of time, especially that that one one of the cultists that flips and and becomes this huge monster, uh, scary guy from from the. Um, I I can already I can already tell this is going to be a fun little ongoing uh, theme of the podcast is <laughs> us not remembering the actual names of uh, cards or monsters or whatever. I think it was just it was just the masked hunter, right? That's that's what his name was. Probably the they just flipped something. it. He just flipped that agenda deck over, it, and and there he is, and the, he's got a million health and the spooky guy that's gonna get you. That guy. Yep. Like oh yeah yeah. Um, but no, and it is cool. You kind of mentioned this. <laughs> like there's these six cultists, and each one when you when you get to see them, they kind of you can actually just fight each of them, which is often a good way to do it. But they all have like kind of a secondary condition. You can you can beat them in a different way, like by discarding cards or by doing a some kind of a test right, or something. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of neat. But yeah, overall, I just I think it's a it's like a well it's just like a well tuned kind of like a board game experience, and it it really does. If that first scenario is kind of like a tutorial, this one feels like recreating a lot of the same stuff that you would do in the original Arkham Horror game, but kind of filtered through this new card game mechanics and stuff. So I I think it's definitely a, a really good scenario. Definitely. So we'll move on to my top my uh, fifth favorite. Uh, and that is the Unspeakable Oath from the Carcosa cycle, um, where kind of everything is more based around. I guess it's a little more. It's it's similar to the to the first scenario, the first uh, campaign rather, the the core set, in that it has a big focus on running around and getting your bearings and and trying to figure out exactly what's going on with with locations and 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 I guess rushing around, but. It has an incredible flavor, I think, where the investigators enter this this madhouse, um, an asylum, and it's just a really good turning point overall in the campaign, where you're kind of investigating everything that's going on with the um, uh, man in the pellet mask, and kind of chasing him, and there's just these really weird, surreal moments where you're not sure if what happened just happened, and there's this, these instances of this the uh, unreliable narrator on the backs of the cards and things like that, and, and you're kind of just getting pushed in completely different ways, and kind of the, the Unspeakable Oath is kind of where that coalesces, where you realize that you might actually just be insane this whole time. Yeah. Without, without it, the game necessarily telling you that, right? It doesn't actually say that, but it pushes it in different ways. Like even the encounter cards, like you're given a straight jacket and these people on the flavor of the cards are looking at you like you're insane, but it's not overtly telling you that. You know, you're just letting yourself into this madhouse and they're like, all right, I guess, I guess we're letting them in. And then you're putting on or you get, you know, dealt this straight jacket and you're running through the halls with, in a straight jacket trying to kill things that may or may not be there. Yeah, I mean, Carcosa has a lot of this kind of uh, unreliable narrator, are we crazy or not theme running through it, which is great and very cool. And I think especially in this one, there's just a real, like, what's the sort of supposed 
rationale for it is like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna sneak into the asylum by pretending we're patients so that we can talk to somebody. It's like, yeah, but <laughs> I mean, I don't know. What, Only a madman would think. What, what do most people that end up in in asylums tell themselves? You know, right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. at the end so, of the day. <laughs> and it's it, one of the cool things about Carcosa, and I, I think we'll probably talk about this more because uh, I mean, I, I think several of our favorite scenarios are from Carcosa. Is that depending on the decisions you make during the campaign, either one of those things, you know, you can get kind of events that happen later that kind of confirm one of those uh, things. Like either you're crazy or you're not crazy. So it's, it's pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely, definitely makes it on my list. Just, just overall theme and mechanics blending together really well. Um, I, I agree about the theme, but what, what about the mechanics of it? Do you like, cause I mechanically, I, I mean, I think it's okay, but I don't know if it really stands out to me very much compared to the other ones. I think my favorite part is is kind of when the scenario switches. You're kind of like you're you're finding your way through the through the asylum and and you have all those alternate objectives where um, you have to like turn on the uh, what is it? You have to go to the kitchen and you have to like just light a fire or something and you have to like talk to the guards and you have to do all these weird weird things that you don't necessarily know why you're doing you have, them you have to like and, start and, a fight and set the yeah you on feel fire. like you're you feel like you're insane or you feel like you either feel like you're you're um ethan hawk you know in like mission impossible and you're like tactfully setting all these traps and everything or whatever ethan hawk is, is that's not his name is it ethan hunt ethan hunt there we go there yeah we ethan, go. Ethan not hawk ethan is hawk. like a different actor scratch that from the the records no. ethan hunt um anyways Basically, you feel like you're kind of you're kind of there being being an investigator, trying to like like all of this is premeditated and and you know you're you know what you're doing, and then you kind of have these glimpses of where like maybe I'm just running through these halls like a straight you know like a, like a madman in a straitjacket, setting the kitchen on fire for no discernible reason, and then <laughs> and then everything switches right like and then you make it to the to the basement where kind of the paint is peeled off the walls and everything's looking kind of rusty and it's and it's the depths of despair essentially for 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 madmen and you go into these different cells and all of a sudden these these monsters start coming out of the sides of the walls and everything i just think it was just really well done and that's kind of like the turning point where you kind of realize all of this stuff is happening or or is it or you're really crazy yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean the the game the scenario does a really good job and, and looking back like it's insane that they managed to do this as well as they did they managed to do a really good job of kind of like leading you on like, yeah, oh, go over here, set the kitchen on fire. No, 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 it makes sense. Oh, yeah, yeah, go start a fight between the <laughs> exactly. guards or whatever. Right. Like each of those things sort of seems like it makes sense because it's like, oh, it's it's like the Bioshock thing. It's like, oh, yeah, in a game, usually like if, if there's an option to do something like to talk to somebody or press a button, you usually do it. Right, of but, course. Of but course. then like if you actually step back and think about the stuff that you're doing, you go, wait, wait, wait a minute, I'm acting like a crazy person. Right. And right? they know like, that too. They know. Like, they know. For those completionists out there, they have to get every single one of them. Right? You yeah, have to, exactly. even if it's just completely stripped of, of lore. You have to do that. Yeah, it's it's like a it's just a fun it's a fun like would you kindly kind of a thing. That's like a, exactly. you know it's it's neat to have that in a card game. Yeah. So that's why that's what my fifth pick. Yeah. Cool. Um. Any anything else to say about uh, Unspeakable Oath? Anything else to see? That's the funny thing about the Unspeakable Oath. You can't you can't speak it, but you can right. unspeak it. So any anything else to unspeak about the unspeakable oath? No. Definitely yes, but absolutely not. Okay, all right. So the fourth one on my list uh, is Dim Carcosa, which is the last scenario of the Path to Carcosa. Mm. And this one, I think I, I was I was really kind of thinking a lot of whether to put Dim Carcosa or Lost in Time and Space, which is the last one of the Dunwich 
legacy uh, campaign. Because I think they, right, what, what right. they both have in common is they're kind of like really good, fun, climactic endings to the campaigns. And they're both, you know, pretty hard to make it through successfully. They both have kind of some interesting, weird stuff going on with the encounter cards. I think what pushed uh, Dim Carcosa over the edge for me was I liked how, uh, sort of like we were what we were talking about a minute ago, it kind of is like the culmination of the choices that you've made over the campaign, so it can unfold in right. very different ways. So do you remember, I move. Mean, do you remember again because we're 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 spoiling stuff? You can either kind of end up like, oh, it was all a dream, or you, you were just crazy, or it can be like, oh no, you know, the spooky king in yellow is real. It's all very scary, right? I right, think. right. Yeah, yeah. Well, some of that also hinges off of that. Go, kind of going back to the unspeakable oath, when you meet Daniel, he's kind of already in that mix, right? And then and then kind of it happens for you in Carcosa when you actually deal with the spooky guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we uh, I so I I'm firmly of the belief that it's a good idea to avoid saying the Yellow King's name even outside the context of the game, just because it's good practice. Right, exactly. Yeah, you don't want you don't you don't want to say that at any playthrough, at any point in time, even if it's on easy mode, even if you're just you know with the family and 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 playing the game, you just don't want to say that thing's name. Well, and the actually, so name. another reason that Dim Carcosa is on my list is because I can just just personally. I can remember two particularly insane and uh, fun ways that I played through it. One of which was was with you, Dane. We played through this as a two oh, as oh, a yes. two player team with uh, it was Safina and Daisy, right? Yes. Do you remember? Uh, do you remember how that went down, Dane? That was a pretty exciting day. Oh, absolutely. So we actually kind of took time out of the out of the Carcosa uh, missions to go do. Uh, I believe we did both. The side missions, Venice, um, the, the Carnival of Horrors, and the Curse of the Ruru. Is that right? Yeah, our our trip. From, yeah. our trip from uh, New England to France went via New Orleans because yeah, right. that makes sense. Right, that's yeah, and yeah. So so we we came here basically with with all the best cards we could get from those scenarios. I think. Well, I guess arguably we we, we uh, Selfina indulged a little too much in in. Um, the the festivities in in New Orleans and and became a werewolf, and we just mauled yeah the we, shit out of the scary we, guy we we got we got the we, version where the Yellow King is a big monster that you just have to fight and uh, Dane playing as Safina just turned into a werewolf and just like wrecked him and it was very funny <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, it was a triumphant moment so that was great and then uh, but I've also played through it with a three person team where I was playing as Agnes, who's probably my favorite investigator, and uh, we ended up just using Agnes's ability. So w- once you get into a certain part of the campaign, every time you say the Yellow King's name, you take a horror. But of course, Agnes has this ability where once per phase, when you take a, a horror onto Agnes, you can do one damage to an enemy at your location. And we ended up just killing the Yellow King by just pretty much every phase for oh, like no. three or four turns, just saying his name uh, over and over again. And using various, using all this different stuff to heal, like using um, fearlesses and things like that, like using ways to, to heal horror. So it was great. Felt like a really bizarre and funny way to, to finish that, that adventure. Definitely. I think, yeah. I think that that scenario has the most strange interactions, mainly because I think, I think that the, the overarching mechanic is, is very atypical of, of the rest of, you know, everything that's come out so far. Yeah, um, and maybe they didn't plan for that. Maybe they just kind of felt like that was fine. That if those kinds of things happening, especially with the Agnes interaction, <laughs> I, I did not even think of that being a thing. Or you know, 
I always want to think in terms of, of, of competitive things where they would ban that kind of thing from happening. <laughs> but but these are these these are the, the the reasons why we love Arkham, where yeah. these kind of things can totally happen, and and you can just kill the the Yellow King by saying his name. And honestly, even without that effect, Agnes is really just nuts anyway. Like, oh you're, yeah, she's you know, definitely the Purple Queen, I think. Akachi's <laughs> definitely up there, but yeah. Because you can just, you can run, like, Forbidden Knowledges, and you can pretty much just take horror whenever you want to anyway, so it's, you know, it's it's a little bit nicer to not have to have cards in your deck and to be able to do it once per phase instead of once per turn, but right, right. it's it's not that huge a difference. And and there are a couple of other things that are cool in, in Tim Carcosa. It has the those possession cards, which are encounter cards right. that kind of make yes. you do weird things. Those are kind of fun. Yes, those are part of my favorite, probably of of the of that uh, the whole campaign. I think yeah, some it, of the possession cards are very cool and very creative. It's a lot like uh, Mansions of Madness, where you can get these like uh, insanity cards that give you different win conditions that your you know friends that you're playing with don't right. know about. Exactly, it kind of has that effect. So it's 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 fun. It's a those are pretty cool too. Definitely, it's very well thought out. I think I think some of the, the the most of the reason I think why Carcosa was just so successful, I think in both of our opinions, was was the encounter cards were were for the most part very very well designed, very like mechanically sound, and very very flavorful. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree. Yeah, so let's see. Let's move on to my fourth pick, and also Dan's third pick. Yeah, uh, that would be the Essex County Express from the Dunwich Legacy. Mm-hmm. The Essex County Express is kind of takes a turn. Everything in regards to the Dunwich uh, Legacy, as well as 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 the Lovecraft, like the um, story, is is very atypical of what happens in the Ex- Essex County Express. At no point is there a high speed. Uh, I guess it, it's not really a chase train chase scene, but it feels like it when you're in it because time is so imperative. Um, you, you're you're it's just everything is physical in that campaign. I have to say, so I was really looking forward to this. This was like spoiled, or not spoiled, but kind of previewed on the FFG website. I think before the course set even came out, and I think it was like, oh yeah, it's, there's going to be one on a train. That's awesome. And I think we kind of pictured this sort of like train action set piece that you see in movies and in games and stuff where right, right. there's a moving train you're kind of like climbing up on top of it oh no there's a tunnel like that kind of thing and it ended up not being exactly that you're on a train that is stopped and you're kind of trying to to get your way to the, to the front of the train as the rear cars get sucked into like a spatial void wormhole thing right um, yep. which which is definitely cool so it was a little bit disappointing that it wasn't like a moving train chase but uh it ended up being fun and interesting enough for me that i i still really like it anyway yeah i mean it still feels that way though even though the train is technically stopped it, you, the the train is slowly being sucked into a massive wormhole and for all we know as investigators i mean when you get knocked out when you get you, you get some trauma and you move on to the next scenario. Nobody knows where that wormhole is going, right? Like nobody knows where those train cars are being sucked into. And the whole time you're, you're basically jumping from train car to train car. I think one of the best, one of the coolest parts of it was each train car kind of tests you in a different way, whether or not you have specific uh, amounts of, of symbols in your hand, right? So like then the, the skill cards, which are inherently things that survivors kind of have a, uh, an affinity for uh, become really useful because you have the things where say um you know you must discard two um intellect uh the, the books 
and and feet and all that kind of stuff to to jump from car to car. And that's in in a campaign in the in the Dunder's Legacy, very based around sanity, right? Like losing your sanity, losing your deck, you know, kind of taxing every part of you except really your physical. There's it's just kind of like briefly when you get smacked by a big thing, you get smacked by a big thing. But for the most part, doesn't really deal with that. And in the Essex County Express, that's very different. That's you you are using everything you've got. You are tip tossing cards to get from train car to train car so you don't get sucked into this massive wormhole. Yeah, I don't know. I, I actually I didn't really like the discard cards that have two uh will symbols on them kind of thing quite as much, mostly just because it seemed like a weird substitute for just doing a test. Like if there's a test it can sure. be like, oh, you have to jump between this car, so make an agility test. Or oh you, oh no there's something really scary do a will test and instead it was like just commit just get rid of cards like I I would have rather I think it, it could have been a more interesting flavor for moving between the cards if a test was involved but I don't know something different that's fine yeah yeah I think I think it, I I just like it because it's a different way to to have you think about your cards and it's way yeah. more of a survivor thing to do so because that's what you're doing with those skill cards anyways you're you're committing them and that's the only purpose. Yeah, because if you're because if you're playing a survivor, most of your cards are really bad, so you might as well just discard <laughs> them to various things because they're not really useful at all. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. But on that mission, you can you can you can do it up, survivors. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, you know, little little <laughs> pat on the shoulder. Um, but uh, no, I I like it a lot because um, sort of like Midnight Masks also had this kind of like time limit that really drives things forward and, and makes things exciting. The same with the with the Essex County Express. You you don't really have decisions to make about where to go because you can only move forward, and you're very constrained on time. So it means that the the few choices that you do have are, are really important. You kind of have to right, very quickly, exactly. you have to very quickly get whatever kind of uh, permanence on the board that you need, like a machete or something like that. And then you really just need to rush straight ahead, and you need to work hard. There's there's cultists and ancient evils in the deck, so yeah. the, the ancient evils you can't really do much about unless you have wards, so you kind of just always have to be aware of that. Like, well, I think we're safe. I think the last car isn't going to disappear this turn, but it might, so we need to make sure we're... We need to try to get out of it anyway. Yeah. And the cultists, you do need to do something about, which is often very difficult. Like, oh crap, we really need to push ahead to the next car this turn so we can take out this cultist. So it's right. just, it's very intense, it's very dangerous, like it really feels like a action set piece in a movie or something where there's no time to lose and you just really have to rush, and I like that. It's definitely one of those scenarios that you look at very differently once you've played it already. I feel like there's a lot more benefit from metagaming with that than a lot of the other ones, just because of that fact. Just because of, you know exactly, I mean... You know, to some extent, it's it's true with every scenario, but with the XX Final Express, it's still hard when you've done it, you know, and, and you know what's coming, and you know what's in the deck, and, and you know, it's it's really just kind of like, if you draw that Ancient Evils, you can just, the, your entire crew and you can just get sucked into that wormhole, and you're just praying that whole time that, you know, the resolution isn't going to be, well, everybody's dead. <laughs> Good try, everybody. You yeah, know, exactly. Like, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, there is there is kind of a lot of variance to it in the sense that if you if you get the wrong combination of uh you know ancient evils and cultists and stuff what's what's the what's the big cultist that like adds a doom every turn oh the uh the silver twilight acolyte i think maybe i i don't remember um but anyway like if you get the right combination of encounter cards it can be just you're really screwed and that's kind of unfortunate but 
But uh, yeah, I just I, I think it's neat. It really it rewards you for playing in a different way than most scenarios. Like you kind of right. have to adapt. You can be like, well, this card that I normally really love and I, I love to play it as this permanent, and then it, it really makes my character better. You can be like, well, there just isn't any time for it. I have to try to get get by without it. Sure, exactly. Yeah, I, I I I think that's really neat. Definitely. So yeah, so that was your that was number four on your list, and number three on mine, kind of together. Yes. What was and the next one is also kind of shared between us. So this is um, number three on your list, and number two on my list is the Pallid Mask, uh, which is the it's in the the Patsikarkosa. Very very enjoyable. Yeah. So this one, just to briefly summarize, so you're in the catacombs of Paris, and you're trying to you're you're kind of exploring around in the catacombs, trying to find uh, information. Actually, I don't really remember the exact setup for like what we're doing in the catacombs, but I'm sure it's cool. And what's neat about this one is that instead of the locations being laid out ahead of time in some kind of a plan, there's like a location deck. And whenever you move into a new location, it'll tell you, you know, put the top card of the location deck into play, like to the left of this or something like that. So it's sort of like a, it's kind of like a random procedurally generated map, uh, which is, which is really neat. Yeah, the way that they did that made it feel very labyrinthine, I think. It made it made it feel very uh you didn't know what was around each corner and you know the map while definitely constraining your 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 table space if you're playing this on a <laughs> normal tiny kitchen table, it's it's really cool to see the map evolve as as you go along and not in the normal way that a map would where you have the little symbols that match up to each other triangle to triangle and stuff like that. It's kind of like the best form of that, right? You kind of just get maps that can go... You kind of want them to go one way so that you can easily route back because there are penalties for being so far out from a specific point in the map. But you, you, you know, not knowing that as well, you can kind of just have all of these different... You might say, oh, well, we're four people. We can you know, all go different ways to cover different places, right? And that it might be the worst place, the worst thing that you can do because there are like those pitfall things, the the holes, the encounter card where the hole oh, yeah. fall into it and just take a bunch of damage and and like warp somewhere. I think I can't remember exactly. Yeah, but. that that to me is is what really makes it cool is that there's this extra challenge of sort of like depending on what direction we go and we're exploring, we can affect how the map is going to look. Right. And that, that makes a huge difference, partly because this is one of the few scenarios where there's something in the, on the, uh, the, the what's it called? The uh, chaos token symbol card uh, yes. that, that tells you what the, what the non-numeric chaos tokens are. There's mm-hmm. something on there which really kind of affects how you want to play the game, which is the skull is minus X, where X is the number of rooms between you and the entrance that you started. Yes. At. Yeah, yeah. The gates to hell, I think it was. Yeah, although I think it depends how I think it depends on the previous stuff in the campaign, which where you actually start, maybe. But so that's really cool because if you get it all stretched out, so it's like a, a long linear pathway mostly, and you're very far away. If you're playing on harder expert, the skull could be like a minus ten, which is really bad. On the other hand, if you can sort of keep it to like maximum minus three or maybe even minus four, that's like pretty good. You know, at that point, you're, you're usually you know it's not great to draw that skull, but it's. You know, it's not worse than the minus four that's usually in the chaos bag. Right. And it also affects, so about later on in the campaign, there's, again, we never remember the names, but there's a big spooky monster that's chasing you. Right. And you can try to fight it, although it's pretty tough, but it's sort of like depending on the layout. So 
ordinarily it's kind of bad to have like a hole in the middle of of the catac- of, of the map because then it's sort of like everything is pretty far away from the entrance. Right. Right. But if if you do have a hole in the middle of the map, you can kind of like lead him around it, and he's he's like chasing you, but you have plenty of time to get out of his way. Right. So there's different strategies for handling the big spooky guy, depending on what your map ended up looking like. Like, cause you can fight him, but like there's some places in the, in the map that are bad to fight him because he gets bonuses and stuff. So I think that's really, really cool. Yeah. And then there's the, um, the enemy that spawns from the corpses of humanoids. Oh yeah. That was yeah. really cool. Yeah those, yeah. those things are really neat. Um, it was kind of like they leveled up or they got possessed by the, the spirit of insanity by, uh, this big spooky guy. Yeah, um, there's there's like weak humanoid enemies in the encounter deck that don't I think are aloof or something like that. But then there's other there's big scary monsters in the encounter deck which say if there's a humanoid enemy on the field, get rid of it and replace it with this. Exactly. Otherwise, otherwise it just doesn't spawn. It goes into the discard pile. So it's sort of like, or I think it gains surge. So it's kind of like if you can keep all of the, the little weak humanoid enemies under control, then there's no way for the really big scary ones to spawn. So yeah, it's right. another layer of like well, something that we have to handle. Yeah, exactly. And and while you're winding through all these you know, yeah. places, you, you, there's really no way that you can kind of keep a, a good manage on them. Um, yeah. These types of like Arkham Horror like co-op games, they work really well when there's lots of different like threats that have to be handled and there's always like just slightly more than you can actually handle. Like you kind of really have to right d- decide right, right, sure. what decide what's like the worst that you really need to prioritize and you have to let some bad things happen just because you can't prevent all of them right yeah unless there are two evils kind of thing yeah and that's speaking of which that kind of is the perfect segue into my and i believe dan's favorite encounter card in the entire game oh are we are we talking about the best encounter card in the game oh we're talking about the best encounter card in the entire game which i believe i wish was a basic weakness because i would love to see this card all the time. I love this card. I would I would at least love to see it in like the core set encounter sets just so we right. would exactly. show up a lot. Yeah, yeah and th- this is not just our favorite encounter card. This is definitely the best encounter card in the game. Like objectively. Yeah, objectively. Yeah. Yes, objectively the best. It's called the Shadow Behind You. Yeah. It is the treachery, it's a terror. You put it in uh, play in your threat area, limit one per investigator, which is important, and you can spend an action to look behind you. And at the end of your turn, if you did not perform the above action ability, you must either discard all of your resources or discard all of the cards in your hand. Then you discard it. And there was a little discrepancy about this, I remember. Yeah, it's 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 a little confusing. So when you first read it, it might seem like at the end of a turn it goes away no matter what. So even if you, regardless of whether you looked behind you, it might seem like, well, it checks to see if you look behind you, and then either way it disappears. But actually, because it has a colon, I think, and not a comma, right. um, it's all part of the same effect. So it definitely stays in your threat area until one turn you don't look behind you. Exactly. And yeah. Then it, and then it gets you, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's it's just, it's so cool. It's like such a perfect translation of like this kind of horror movie feeling into a card. Because you can keep looking behind you and like, oh yeah, as long as you look behind you, you're safe. Like it's not going to attack if you're looking at it. But the minute there's one turn where you're like, oh, I'm safe. I don't need to. I don't need to worry about this. Or you can't. Yeah, exactly. Or, because, or you just can't. Yeah, like if you have an enemy on you and you spend this action, you might get hit by an attack of opportunity. Exactly. You might have lost a bunch of your your actions. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just, I wish this card was in more places. 
I really do. It, it's so so incredibly favorable, so incredibly good. Even the art is incredible. It yeah. looks like Scully is, is, is being chased <laughs> by a very big, scary shadow, a big, you know, yeah. creepy monster. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's awesome. It's also, I mean, so there's some encounter cards that are just like no fun to draw because it's like, oh, great. I drew this, I drew, what is it, the, the Umortoth one, the Terror of Umortoth or something oh like that? Oh my god, yeah. The it's like six, and then you put a new, uh, it's like, oh, or something in your it's game. like, oh, anybody got an upgraded word, please? Oh, no? Oh, okay, all right, this is going to happen. Well, great. There's like, there's some that are just so brutal and punishing that it's like, oh, this is no fun. This right. one is like, it's definitely pretty bad sometimes, but as long as other things are kind of under control, you can kind of play around it. Like, you can play cards from your hand to get down to maybe, like, one or two resources, and then you can have it, like, you can lose all of your resources. And it's like, oh, okay, I only right. lost a couple resources. It's not that bad. Or, um, you know, you can, oh, well, I only have a couple cards in hand. Let me use the important cards, and then I don't really care if I lose my other cards. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's it really kind of turn the tides and i wish there were more effects kind of like it you know if they could kind of do something with that sort of flavor it was it was it was it was magnifico yeah no but i mean definitely i mean so perfect flavor perfect mechanics perfect like link between the two i think the only it it is sort of like maybe they thought it was sort of specific to the labyrinth because you're running through it so you can be chased and like yeah it makes sense there's those blinders like maybe maybe like a ghost doesn't make sense in every scenario, but I I still think this is like general enough that it really could be used in a lot of scenarios, and it it's just so great. Yeah, and I mean it's it's also um, you're kind of running through these this this labyrinth essentially, and you've got these blinders on, and and you're in the catacombs, right? You're you're, you're they they bury people there. There's bones all over the walls, so of course there's going to be some spooky supernatural ghosts happening. It might yeah. not even be be uh, you know attributed to a big spooky guy at the end there, but also it kind of my my personal kind of reason why it's it's definitely high up on the list is because it reminds me of my favorite Edgar Allan Poe thing, which is the Cask of Amontillado, where these people go down into these um, these catacombs, and it's it's it evokes exactly that feeling. It's it's spooky. Ugh, it's just so wonderful. Yeah, really, uh, I mean, it, it's a really fun scenario mechanically. Also just really, really cool uh, from a flavor standpoint. And the, the ending of it is really neat because you sort of, you, you meet the the stranger and uh, depending on what's happening in the campaign, some kind of, you know, fateful event happens. Right. And then then you go to kind of like an interlude after this and it's, it's, it's just really neat. Definitely. So then next up we have my number two pick. And Dan's number one pick. Mm-hmm. That is the Carnival of Horrors, which is the side mission that you can play, or you can play it as you know a dedicated mission if you wish. Which came out? Did it come out before Curse of the Ruguru? No, this uh, Curse of the Ruguru was the Gen Con scenario actually before the game was released. Okay, yeah. This one came out soon after Curse of the Ruguru. Yeah, I remember them not being too far apart. I remember that the Dunwich Legacy, Curse of the Ruguru, and the carnival coming out kind of relatively within a, a three-month period of each other. Yeah, I distinctly remember thinking like, oh man, they've done two of these standalone scenarios already. This is great. Maybe we'll get like four or five of these a year. Right. And exactly. uh, they, yeah. they slowed down a well, lot after this one. Well. Um, yeah, it seems like one-ish a year is probably what we're going to get, which is, yeah. you know, which is fine. It's probably a lot of work to design so many scenarios. So 
Yeah, I mean, especially speaking from the Carnival of Horrors, I definitely think I could play that as a self-contained scenario, too. It's, yeah, it's yeah. wonderful. Every yeah. every every part about it, I think, was just wonderfully designed. The mechanics translate so well into the themes. The whole um, very unique, very unique uh, layout of each of the locations and everything. So, in case, uh, I mean, especially because this is a standalone one, I don't know. I don't know if these are like less popular. A few people have bought them and played them. Can you quickly give us like an overview of how this scenario works? Yeah, so we have the the investigators go to Italy to kind of figure out what's going on. There's there's this big festival that's supposed to be happening, uh, the Carnival, and everybody's coming out in in masquerade masks and all this kind of stuff. And you have to you have to kind of walk around uh, Venice with all of these carnival goers all over the streets, just crowds of people moving through these tiny uh, cramped you know, passageways and things, because Venice, you know, is the city on water. You you have to push through these crowds, and, and mechanically that translates into it being a round map with locations that are only connected one way. So you have, you, you can go, uh, you know, clockwise, but you cannot go back uh, once you move to a new location. So you basically have to go, if you're starting at the um, the chapel, or, or what, is it actually the Notre Dame Cathedral? I don't remember. No, the Basilica. Of the Basilica, Santa yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you start there, and the only way, if you move to the next one to get back, is going all the way back around and exploring each of the um, locations. Yeah, and it's it's neat also because you you sort of deal out the locations randomly in a random order. So you get sort of right. a different, uh, you get a different circle each time, but either way, it's a circle with eight locations in it. Yeah. And what, what you're yeah. doing is you're going around this circle and each location, except for the beginning one has a, was a masked carnival goer, which is like a, a card that's sort of sitting on it and you can spend clues to flip it over. And three of them are innocent revelers that you have to sort of take as an ally and sort of guide back to the Basilica to safety. The other ones are each sort of, uh, you know, cultists are, 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 are bad guys. Which they're elites, too. They yeah, are they, very scary. Yeah, some of them are pretty tough. They each It's sort of like in Midnight Mask or something. They like each have a different ability. So those are cool. And, and they're also each worth a victory. So if you're really These trying to... These aren't your mom's cultists, man. <laughs> some of them have very strange effects that, that they can go backtrack. They can they can move in the way that you can't. They mimic your, your, uh, your fight and your base agility. Yeah, yeah, some of them are terrifying. Yeah, and it's just it's neat because it's sort of like, and and you also you don't have a huge amount of time, right? Like it, you're pretty constrained, so you can't just go around the circle as many times as you want. You in most games, like if you have three players, you know, a lot of times you have like one person that has like Pathfinder and sort of fast movement or Leo DeLuca and stuff, and maybe you can be like, okay, this person's going to go around twice, but the rest of us can really only afford to go around once. So we kind of have to accomplish everything we need to accomplish without, you know, screwing anything up and without taking too much time. Because you really want to get those three innocent revelers to safety um, in order to get the good ending and rewards and things. Right, and very bad things happen when you don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As, as, I mean, as, you know, kind of per the per the game. But, um, yeah, every 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 part of the, the especially the ending. The, the This scenario nails that ending so well. I, I remember being in awe of, of getting into a boat I've never been so excited to get into a boat in Roman. It's, let me tell it, you. It's in probably any scope. It's probably the biggest holy crap moment to happen in the middle of a scenario. Oh, definitely. I, I think in any in any of these. Um, so what happens? So, so and and again, this is all spoilers. Hopefully, everyone's played it by now. But 
what happens is once uh, the first two once the first two agendas have finished, I, I think that's what triggers it, right? Yes, it's it's so you have to. Uh, either find all the carnival goers or the agenda flips and yeah, all of the uh, they exactly. all start taking off their masks and being all spooky and stuff. Yeah, once once you've sort of finished that part of trying to rescue the revelers regardless of how successful you were, the uh, agenda deck flips over and the, on the back of the of the second agenda is like a single new location which is just like a boat that's trying to flee Venice. So all the other locations go away, all the other enemies go away and you're all just moving into this one location which is a boat. Right, and it's not a big boat; it's like a rowboat. And the the big mon- the big scary monster, is the only other card on the on the on the table at this point. Yeah, and the big unpronounceable uh, scary tentacle monster who appeared earlier and, and was kind of like sitting in the middle of the circle, not really able to do very much. Yeah. Now now is like chasing you, and you basically have to quickly do agility and fight tests to row the boat to sort of get away and, and you're not just trying to escape you're trying to sort of lead it away from venice so you're you know you're still being heroic you're not just retreating but that it's just really neat how this big complicated map kind of like collapses down into a single boat and it's like right. the it's like right. the climax of a of a movie or something where like oh, uh, everything changes where, where tom cruise and keanu reeves are all in the same boat and all rowing all rolling their d20s to get out of there right they're, they're all pulling from this chaos bag did they because... ever do a movie together i don't think they have. absolutely not i don't know we should oh man there should be tom cruise should be like the bad guy in john wick 3 or something how cool would that be? that'd just be great the other cool thing about carnival of horrors is there's some really good encounter cards um like the art yes. do you remember the one uh I, again this is uh, we're not going to be able to remember the names of most of these cards but do you remember the the card where the art is just like a, a guy with like an italian hat looking confused and kind of like looking around Oh, uh, Lost in Venice, I believe. Yeah, that, that's just a cool. It's just a cool card. It's like, yep, you're lost. <laughs> yeah, yep. And then you you either that's the one you either have to take to horror or move to the location across from you. So it yeah. kind of like it it pits even even the um you know the the way that you have to run around the circle against you because you might just end up on one of the spaces where one of the mass revelers are that are you know spooky and bad and they're going to start attacking you. It kind of definitely uses that very very well. Sure, but it also, in in some circumstances, might actually be helpful. I always like. I think it's cool when there's encounter sure, yeah, cards yeah. that are usually bad, but under some circumstances, you might actually want them. Like how right, right. crypt uh, crypt chill or th- things that like make you you know discard one of your permanents, uh, one of your assets in play. Yeah, sometimes those are good if you're trying to get rid of something so you can sort of cycle it back from the discard pile or something. So I I always like those. Yeah, I mean if you're York, sure. Yeah, <laughs> and most of the time it just feels really bad. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, what's the one from from Car- uh, not Carnival? Um, Carcosa. Is it is it Ooze and Filth? I feel like it's not Ooze and Filth. Ooze and Filth Ooze is the one that goes filth. on the agenda deck. No, it's 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 uh, it just makes you discard. Oh, corrosion. A certain number. Yeah, corrosion. There we go. Ugh. That one's awful. See, that's. <laughs> I think that's half the reason that Unspeakable Oath did not make it onto my top five is because <laughs> it, it has both it, it has both corrosion and straight jackets. And just yes. like, oh, you just cannot keep a machete on the on the yes, board, like no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My only criticism, I think, of the of the Carnival is is what the hell is that monster's name, man? It's Italian. It's hard to pronounce. <laughs> if, if anybody could enlighten us. 
Let us know. Send us a sound file no, of you know that what? name. No, don't. Because even if you claim you know how to pronounce it, I don't believe you, and I think you're just making it up. So don't even. Don't don't even. You're probably even already try. insane from going through Carcosa anyway. Yeah, exactly. Don't even don't even try. Um, yeah. But no, this, this one's just really really good. I don't know. I think it's it's print on demand, so I think like you know it shouldn't be that hard to get a hold of this. If anybody right. hasn't played this scenario, you you got to get it. It's it's just the best one. And it's cool because you can fit it into a campaign if you want. Like, you can play it standalone, or you can just kind of slot it in between a good stopping place in Carcosa or Dunwich. It doesn't usually give you much more XP than you spend to do it. You have to spend three XP. Yeah, you spend three experience, which is kind of a lot, at least comparative to... Uh, yeah, but that's but that's fine. And you get the... If you the if you succeed, the rewards are decent. Like, the, the masks are good for some people, and... Oh, the yeah. Abyss is okay sometimes. It's and, it, and it's just the best scenario. Like even if it doesn't get you XP, it's it's still super worth super fun. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um. So that was that was your number two and my number one. So we've gone through my whole list. Dane, what is uh what is your your number one favorite Arkham Horror the card game scenario of all time? Dan, I'm glad you asked. And we'll kind of refer to our last comment there as this is definitely objectively the best scenario in all of arkham horror and it will be throughout arkham horror's history when we're on when we're in egypt and when we're in you know way down the way versing all the different horrors of of cosmos the gathering will still be the best scenario in all of arkham horror and the reason why i say this (laughs) listener i i promise you dane is not joking he actually does have this ridiculously faith Dane actually does have this ridiculously dumb opinion. Uh, go ahead, Dane. If if at Arkham Knights, anybody cosplays, I will be cosplaying as the entirety of the scenario of The Gathering. I don't know how yet, but I will. <laughs> now, the reason why I love this is because it, it was, I mean, for everybody's kind of first game, this is how I fell in love with the game, obviously. There's just there's there's a lot of nostalgia about being being up at midnight and and lighting candles. We were we were t- about two steps away from getting some robes and and you know uh, going full full on uh, sacrificial animal. Thing. We, we weren't that's, really sacrificing. That's but, that, that's just you being a giant nerd, Dane. That's absolutely and and there the I I just feel like it does such a good job at introducing the mechanics um, of the game. Um, it has such wonderful it it. it perfectly sets up the personality for the game it kind of puts you perfectly in this little house kind of like a little house of the dead situation where you um you kind of have to figure out what's going on um it's kind of first nobody knows what's going on you have to pull up the rug and then you have to pull, go down into the 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 i mean at first it starts out you're just in one location you don't even know that you can move from location to location you kind of have that indication on the little player card thing but for the moment there's one location in play and then it opens up to a smaller or or a bigger um you know your hallway and you've got the attic and the cellar and and there's one place that's blocked off and you kind of learn about clues you learn how victory works you learn how enemies with victory work on them you learn about everything in just a, a a great way they have you know rats the smaller enemies that you don't really have to worry about too much then um, you have the really big, scary enemies that have specific spawn locations. Just from a design standpoint, I just love the game. I, I love the uh, that that um, specific scenario rather. I feel like it just also sets up the rest of the campaign perfectly. And by the rest of the campaign, I mean the Midnight Masks, where you go from this small house that either burns down or you know you kind of figure out another way to do it. 
in and it incorporates that into the next scenario and you kind of opens up the scope bigger and bigger as you go along. So, I mean, most of it is just my my nostalgia and my love for for people learning the game and and loving kind of how the mechanics work and being introduced to the game itself. Are you uh can I can I hit you with some some spicy analogies, Dane? When can you not? Spicy analogies are in order quite so, right now. So let me let me stipulate first that the gathering is a very good and well designed like tutorial for the game, an introduction for the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's which is which is great. But for this to be your favorite scenario is like going to a Mexican restaurant and getting like the free chips and salsa at the beginning and just being like, Wow, these are so great, I don't even need to order food. Like, why would anyone want anything else? Would you be surprised if I told you that happened? No, I, I would not at all be surprised. All right, well, it didn't, but still, this is, this is like this is like going to Disney World and hanging out at the like entrance area where you like get maps and buy your tickets and stuff, and it's playing like <laughs> Disney music, and you're like, "Wow, Disney World is awesome! I wonder what's over yeah. there through that gate." Like, it's fine, okay. but come on, man, it's the gathering. Like, so my my uh, <laughs> counterpoint to that is that which Dan, which of these scenarios? Are they re-releasing and doing more on? Actually, they're expanding the entirety of one of the scenarios. One of it, it can't be the Forgotten Age because that's not that hasn't been fully released yet. It can't be the Castor Carcosa because that just came out, it, and it can't definitely not be the Dunwich Legacy because the Dunwich Legacy is pretty complete in all of its own ways. No, I mean I, I could flip that around. Why are they releasing a new version of it if it's so great? Because it, there's there's only one way to go when you're amazing. <laughs> Clearly, when 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 you can, I think it does not absolutely does not. But I think that it's it's definitely really cool to think about how you can introduce people to the game better. I I personally would love to run around you know all of uh, Massachusetts and and the surrounding area to to teach people the game and to play the Gathering a whole bunch of times. And what better way to introduce it one way than two ways? You know, like you could you can introduce it to them first and then you can have them revisit it later you know and be like oh wow this this place is yeah it's it's similar you know to my first experience with the game but but it's got a lot more you know flavor and 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 cool spooky enemies and things yeah no it's really interesting because i would really love to not drive all over massachusetts and play the same scenario over and over again with random people um but no, I mean, look, I, I like I said, I think it's a good tutorial. I, I respect it for that. I just, I don't really ever need to play it again. Like, some of these, like Pallid Mask, I could replay a lot, just because it's a little different each time. There's different ways to do it. And it fits as part of this kind of, like, big campaign that you can do, you can go multiple ways through. Like, Carcosa is very replayable, I think. Night of the Zealot in general, not so much, and especially The Gathering. Maybe it'll change when we get the return to Night of the Zealot. Maybe that'll kind of mix things up a little bit, but... uh I don't know. I I don't really. I don't want to play this again. <laughs> I played play, it fear, enough times. My only fear with Return to the Night of the Zealot is that. So, I I think they could definitely improve the way that um you know how you state that the gathering feels like a tutorial because it is. Yeah. They can kind of try and make that feel more like a full mission, right? Like like a full. Uh, what's the first one from Path Dark? Uh, curtain Curtain Call kind of a thing where. Curtain Call. You already know kind of the mechanics of the game, and and you're familiar with everything, and now you can kind of take more in. But for the second scenario, the, the Midnight Mask, I feel like that was just a really, really good, very well fleshed out, you know, mechanically and and flavorfully um, 
uh, uh, campaign or, or uh, scenario rather. Um, and I'm kind of like scared if, if if they might like kind of try and dilute it a little bit or, or what they're going to try and add more locations or something. But I guess we'll see when the time comes. But definitely something can be done about that last <laughs> that last scenario, man. Yeah, it'll, it'll it'll be interesting to see how it happens with um, Return of the United Zelda because we we haven't played it yet. It comes out next week as of when we're recording this. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think a lot of the scenarios, like even Midnight Masks, they could just add a couple more random cultists. Like instead of having the same six every time. Oh, mm-hmm. now there's like eight, and you randomly put two of them aside, and then you put the other sure, ones sure. in. Yeah, like that, that'd yeah, be I could cool. See. Simple, simple changes like that, sure. Yeah. Well, anyway, so yep, very uh, the gathering number one. Huh. All right, <laughs> numero uno. Yeah, all right. Arkham, Arkham, the gathering. Um, so those are our those are our lists. There was definitely some overlap. I don't know. That's partly just because we um, I don't know we we have we have similar opinions about stuff sometimes, uh, but not always. But we also said j- just kind of you know without getting too negative on it we were also maybe going to try to briefly list what we thought were some of the the less good scenarios maybe some of the worst right ones. yeah yeah the ones that definitely failed to stand out as as being super unique or just kind of repetitive in 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 uh, mechanics and things yeah i mean you know mostly um the matt newman and the the ffg people you know they, they they're doing a great job but uh you can't hit a home run all the time right <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's how i think that's how baseball works um <laughs> So we yeah. kind of hinted at this a minute ago. The Devourer Below, the third one in Night of the Zealot, the the climax of Night of the Zealot, is is not great, right? Yeah, definitely. That's that's. Uh, I remember first being really really happy about the Gathering and really happy about Midnight Masks, and then just feeling very confused and dead uh, very fast. <laughs> and the Devourer Below, yeah, it, where where the scope, you know, like I was very much focused on on going from a small house to the whole town and then you're in this spooky forest and that's fine you know you can kind of revert back to being spooky and stuff but in a small scope but it just very very punishing it's got ancient evils it's got wrath of mordoth which is basically as bad as ancient evils it it has all of the worst cards that that just make the game go faster and the reason why i think ancient evils literally just says everybody loses a turn and yeah. that is no fun for anybody, but I think it's kind of one of those necessary evils to exist in a game like this, but not alongside other things that say everybody loses a turn and takes damage and puts a bad card in their deck. You know, like, that's... what. Whoa. Yeah, I think that... So having Ancient Evils and Cultists in the same scenario is always really, like, spicy and nasty. And, yeah. like, the Essex County Express has both of those, but that's sort of... Like it works well because it's you're you're rushing like you're trying to get through it as quickly as possible. Yeah, and I think at that point too, you've you've gone through three scenarios, right? You've gone through the first two from the core set. You've gone through the um the the library or the the museum. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, but that's what's kind of nuts about this one is that it's it, it was this was like I think the first scenario that had this phenomenon of the really hard scenarios are the ones where the encounter deck is just chock full of like big non-trivial monsters. Right, right. Because like, right. In, like encounter like treacheries. You know, you can usually handle them. But if there's just monsters out here that have like four fight, four health, and hit for like two health and one two sanity and or something like yeah. that, yeah, or like two right. and two, that's just a, a, a huge threat that you really need to deal with. And sometimes, like in this scenario, the encounter deck just seems like has way too many of those. Yeah, and on top of that, it piles on things from the last scenarios, right? So if you didn't kill the ghoul priest in the first one, or if you missed any of the cultists from the second one, which you probably did, yeah, <laughs> they're they're coming back, <laughs> which is a cool thing, like as theoretically, but not in the devourer below. 
Because in theory, Midnight Masks is like, oh yeah, you're trying to get all six, but like that's really hard. Maybe you can get four or five. But if there's any that aren't dead, I mean, this this one, Devour Blow is already so hard. If you're missing any, you're hmm. really screwed. And it's right, exactly. It, and it's sort of like, okay, well, it's you know, it's Arkham Horror. It's supposed to be really hard. It's supposed to you're supposed to lose sometimes. I get that. And they do kind of give you this out of if you have Lita Chantler in your deck, and if you can find her. Because in the gathering, you can one player can the lead investigator can put Lita Chandler in in their deck. Right. Yeah. You you can sort of throw her to the monster and get like a not not a good ending, but at least you kind of like survive. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is like even surviving long enough to do that is hard. You also have to draw Lita Chandler. She might be at the bottom of your deck. Right. And it's <laughs> that's not much of an out, especially like the supposed good ending of. I guess you could defeat Umordoth once it spawns, but supposedly you can like prevent it from even being summoned, but I don't think that's possible. <laughs> like, is that, have you ever done that? Yeah, I've done it a couple times. Um, it's it's way harder because you have to be on top of everything. The only times that I did it were the times where, you know, we kind of knew what was coming and we were able to kill all the cultists. That was the big thing. We were able yeah. to kill at least five of the cultists. And the encounter deck just being really stacked with nasty monsters. Like, you're trying to really rush to get clues to stop it being summoned, but if there's just, like, elite monsters or giant monsters running around, it's really tough to do that. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is that, you know, it's way different doing it now when you have four scenarios worth of cards to draw from, right? Whereas when that core set came out, you had five investigators, none of which were particularly good by themselves other than Agnes being incredible, um, and, and Daisy being pretty good as well. Um yeah, yeah, Roland, Roland being pretty solid, but but none of them that can can handle <laughs> that much yeah. um, horror and uh, yeah, like like as as the card pool has grown, effects. we've we've got a lot more options to like you know make yeah. decks and stuff that we didn't have back then. But it's still hard. Like you can go right, in with exactly. good decks, and it's still pretty hard to do the devourer below. Definitely. So yeah, it, it just it, you basically you go into the forest at night and you just get stomped by a bunch of big monsters. Is my main yeah. Memory. I think I think the the, the TLDR or whatever yeah. would be would be that it's just kind of like doesn't elegantly transition from the first scenario to the second scenario. You kind of go from like a one difficulty to a five difficulty, and there's no real good way to just ramp it up straight to straight up to a ten. But they did, yeah. and yeah. it it really sucks <laughs> <laughs> to to, to well, be wandering around in that. Yeah, area. and this is I what I'm kind of hoping is it maybe returning of the zealot will maybe make some big changes to this one because this is of the three in the core set this is definitely the one that maybe needs like a second draft Um, 100 percent yeah yeah so let's see what were the other ones we were going to talk about for maybe uh not being great so the second one definitely on on my list and on on kind of what i've seen from you know facebook group and things like that undimensioned and unseen was definitely one of the ones that uh stuck out to me as mechanically not being very intuitive or unique or in, unique in a good way i think it's it's not very unique in a good way um you so you kind of come out of blood on the altar with having to run around all of dunwich finding the key to the chamber and battling this big spooky monster at the end or not and and kind of finding a way to cure him or whatever and you kind of come out of it with with these big spooky invisible monsters um attacking you and you have to find a way to do that. And they give you, they, they basically give you cards to deal with them and say that none of the cards in your deck that deal damage, which is probably most of your deck if you're, if, if you're a guardian, <laughs> do anything to these guys. And if you're playing skids, hopefully you're not. If you're playing skids or anybody who has 
relatively low will, you're kind of just fucked. Yeah, so you have um, you have these big monsters which can't be harmed by normal abilities. They only have a small amount of health. They're not that bad, but you can only beat them using these sort of... I forget what it's called. Some kind of magical scientific thing that each of the investigators gets. Yeah, the esoteric formula, I think. But yeah, because it really just feels like if you happen to just not have anybody in your group that has high will... Like if you happen to just have who? What's a seek? What's a seeker with low will? If you have like Rex um, or somebody, Rex, like Rex is three, right? I don't know. But if if, yeah. if if you just have maybe like you know if you don't have a mystic and you don't have somebody else that has like high will, it's really hard. Like you can do this stuff where you kind of like exhaust them and put clues on them, and there's ways to do that to to give you a bonus when you attack them. But meanwhile, in the time that you're doing that, they're getting these encounter cards put on them that just makes them have even higher fight and and health and stuff. And it also just feels kind of awkward. Like, you, you draw from this deck of random locations to see where they move, to have them kind of move around randomly, which, I don't know. It, it, it It's a neat idea to have, like, oh, there's these inv- invisible monsters that we can't fight normally, but it ends up just being kind of, like, awkward and not that fun. Yeah, I think kind of it, kind of part of it, that is the um, the awkwardness of the random ability, where you're, you're kind of, like, you're incentivized to kill these things. But they're just kind of floating around randomly, you know. Like they're not—they're not chasing you. They're—they're they're not like—they're just kind of floating around. And and yeah. you know, the encounter cards would say otherwise. They're saying, "Oh, they're these big, scary, invisible things that are trying to kill everybody," you know. And they, it's just kind of like very not indicative of of the mechanic. Yeah, and it's also because they're—they're they're not hunters, so they don't move and then attack the way that normal hunter enemies right, would. Right. Instead, they move at the end of the enemy phase. Um, and I think even if they're exhausted. Yep. Even if they're exhausted, they slide across the ground. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But by then, they've they've missed the chance to attack. So. Right. You, you have a lot of opportunities to not get hit by them. It never really feels like, oh, I've been cornered by these invisible monsters. So exactly, kind of a kind of a miss on that one. I don't think it really worked the way that they were trying to make it work. You know, the, the rest of done, which is pretty good. Yeah, though I will say the one thing that stood out to me was that it was cool because of the resolution of Blood on the Altar. Uh, you kind of find out who dies, who who you know got their heads lopped off or whatever in ritual sacrifice, and the less that you saved the less the big monsters you have to deal with. The more you saved, the more benefit, you know, you have from getting more allies and stuff. The the worse it is. So the more all of the, you have to deal with all of the monsters if if you saved everybody or everybody but one. It's true, but you also get a victory point for each monster that you beat. So Yeah, I mean but you you just can't kill those things, man. You need yeah. like mind wipe, and at that point, who is going to put mind wipe in your deck? When it is really, coming, it right? is really funny that mind wipe, which is really not a very good card in general, happens to be a pretty great way to cheese these big invisible monsters. Although you don't get the victory for them if you beat them. Yeah, exactly. That's the trade off. You spend a victory on <laughs> on the mind wipe, and then you lose another one. So the other kind of way to cheese them, which works a lot better, which we experienced very recently, we're we're playing oh, yes. through Dunwich. So I'm playing William Yorick, and you know normally you can't commit a vicious blow to a will test because you can't commit a, a you know a card with icons unless it has icons that match the type of test it is. But if you use the mask from uh, Carnival of Horrors, yes, Bauta. Yeah, exactly. There's a mask where you get to once it's on the on the field, you get to discard it to take a test that you're doing and turn it from some other type of test into a combat test into a fight test. And then once once you've turned this will test to attack the invisible monsters into a fight test, then you can commit a vicious blow to it, and you can do extra damage to them. Right, um, exactly. So and and if you're William Yorick, you can recur the the mask multiple times, and it it, it works pretty great. So yeah, 
Yeah, I'd say that was the cleanest run through on Dimension and Unseen, and it was definitely the most bearable. So yeah, on Dimension and Unseen, not 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 our favorite. It's all right. And then oh, so the, the other one we were going to maybe mention was the the Untamed Wilds, which is a newer scenario. This is the first scenario in the Forgotten Age. This one we've I think we've definitely played this less than the other ones that we've talked about, right? Yeah, I, I think I've only played it twice so far, but both times very very brutal. <laughs> Yeah, and I like that aspect of it, but I feel like just the way, it, I guess it might feel a little clunky to me. There's there's a huge amount of unavoidable damage. There's like arrows from the trees. Yeah. There's there's a there's like that enemy that shoots people in adjacent locations. Like there's just a lot of damage and horror that you really can't avoid, which is a bummer. Oh yeah, and on top of that, there's the poison. They really want you to be poisoned. Yeah. In the first scenario, it really feels like you basically cannot avoid being poisoned. Yeah. Like even if you I remember the first time I played it, I was playing as Ursula and I'd, I you know I'd succeeded in all my tests the other players were poisoned but I I barely managed to avoid it and then I just happened to move into a location that says when you enter this location you're poisoned. <laughs> so it was it was great. Yeah. Um now that being said, you know the rest of the the cycle hasn't been released yet so we don't really know exactly what's what's coming um in per- like pertaining to poison but what already exists is really bad <laughs> yeah you you do not want to be poisoned no in no scope there's also the encounter deck has a lot of these like three fight three health snakes which a monster with three health might as well have four usually because you have to hit yeah, it with, like two exactly. machetes or two shrivelings like right you know maybe you can like machete and beat cop it or something but the point is you you need like two two hits or two uses of something to be able to kill it. And that's just, that it, you know, when you have large numbers of, like, non-trivial enemies that, like, take more than an action to deal with, it's just, it's definitely nasty. It's just a really brutal scenario. And that's the first one yeah. in the campaign. I think one of the one of the redeeming points of it, I will say, is that I feel like part of the reason why they have three three health is because they want you to kind of get into that more rogue survivor mentality, right? Where they want you to dodge them because of the vengeance mechanic. The vengeance mechanic kind of... I love the vengeance mechanic. I think it's wonderful counterpart to victory. Um, yeah. However, I think that the enemies kind of are already punishing enough to the point where, I mean, three health is really annoying to deal with. But suddenly you kind of have to deal with them a different way. You can't just, like, maul the crap out of everything that you see at this point. You kind of have to go, maybe maybe we dodge this guy, right? Maybe we dodge this guy and we leave him here because he doesn't have Hunter. You know, we can leave him here and we can just kind of keep exploring the forest over this way. I think that's kind of what their mindset is. I feel like the rogue role as well as the, the survivor role are kind of taking auxiliary roles for Guardians and Seekers. Where Guardian Seekers, there's no reason not to play a Guardian Seeker right now. Unless you want to play a Mystic, which is also pretty fine. But really just the roles, you, you need your tank and you need your Seeker. The one who's going to be progressing the game and the one who's going to be, be dealing with the nasties. And I feel like they're kind of trying to explore putting Green in in with with uh, Finn in that investigating sort of role. Now Finn, I think, is pretty awful because of that one will. His his will is such a huge deficit to not have. And yeah, that's a really bad. Uh, that's that's a really bad stat to have as well. It is so bad, and I think that that definitely cripples, like just irreparably cripples an investigator. But. I think that what they're doing with it is very clever. They're kind of like, they have, um, what's the uh, eavesdrop 
they kind of have a really good um, counterpart to deduction or, or, you know, something that would scoop up a bunch of clues. And then they kind of have these these survivor things now, like with Silas, who came out from one of the books. Um, they have the, the, the Guardian counterpart, as well with York too. York is kind of functions as both. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's neat that they're, you know, it's neat that they're making evading be more useful, I guess, but I just... Mm. So far, I think it not has not been implemented as of yet. But maybe you draw one of those big snakes when you're on a location that you really need to get clues from, or you draw it at the wrong time, and it's suddenly like, well, crap, I already took a bunch of damage from randomly being shot by arrows in the middle of the jungle, <laughs> and yep. now I'm about to die. Yeah. It yeah. just feels really, and, and again, first scenario, you know, no no room to kind of like settle in and see how things are going. You're just immediately getting like, definitely closed. not, yeah, definitely not for beginners. I don't think I don't think you go <laughs> you introduce somebody with the yeah. There's age. there's also yeah, yeah there's also the the supply thing which I know you kind of hmm. like or at least don't dislike. I as like much the concept of it. Before you start that first scenario, you're going to do these two scenarios in the jungle. You sort of get to choose which supplies to bring with you. You can bring like a yeah. map or a canteen or antidotes stuff like that and then various stages during the campaign it says like oh if you have a blanket this happens if not this happens and oh if somebody has a canteen this happens and things like that i well, rather not this bad thing this bad thing doesn't happen if you don't yeah have they, they mostly, you have it otherwise it's a bad thing they mostly prevent bad things from happening i really don't like it just because i think it's a mechanic that the very first time you play it when you don't know what things do it's this weird puzzle where you're trying to guess what each of them is good for which doesn't really feel connected to the actual experience of like planning out what supplies you need for a mission. You're just kind of, it's just a shot in the dark. Like, well, I guess rope seems useful. Then you get to the campaign and you find out you were wrong. Rope actually was not useful at all. Right. <laughs> you, you know, Ford's minor use is is in the campaign somewhere. Like, and yeah, then you find this... out, oh, you didn't bring a bedroll. Well, take a trauma. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> oh, okay, well, that, that's bad. <laughs> and then you kind of figure out, okay, I just have to take these things every single yeah, time I go out the door. And like after the first time you play it. It's just pretty much just know what to take, and after yeah, that, it exactly. stops being an interesting mechanic. So I, yeah. that's just, that's just that's what I don't like about it is that it's it's like a binary thing. It's like, do you know what they do? No. Well, then have fun guessing completely randomly. And right. if you do know what they right. do, then you just you can easily choose the best option. Yeah, I think I loved it because it was kind of one of those towards character creation parts. I, I'd spend hours making decks and making characters and RPGs and things like that. And I feel like it just kind of adds to that a little bit. It adds to the flavor of being in a jungle and having limited resources and stuff. But I just I just don't think that it can be implemented that elegantly in, in uh, Mechanic. Maybe it could. Maybe, maybe it'll come back and, and be kind of a, more of a cool thing. But as it is now, it's just super harsh. And uh, while I like it, that the jungle is harsh because the jungle is definitely harsh. It's very, it's harsh, man. <laughs> it's just, whew. yeah, I don't know. Well, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, like I said, we've, I think we've done because it came out recently. I've, I think we've each probably done the untamed wild twice compared yes. to generally more than that for most of these other scenarios. So yes, yep. you know, maybe it'll grow on us and we're interested to see what happens with the rest of uh, the forgotten age. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, anyways, thanks everybody for for listening. We'll try and be posting these episodes bi-weekly to iTunes and wherever you would get your podcasts. We're going to make sure that we can um, come out with some good content, different segments and things like that. Things of this nature that you might like. Yeah, we're going to try to, you know, maybe we'll try to follow along like when new Mythos packs are released with new scenarios. We'll kind of talk about what they were like. Maybe we'll talk about some of the new player cards. And we'll also maybe do some episodes that are just about other topics as well. Definitely. 
And again, any input would be most welcome. Um, we will have our... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Don't, don't, do you want to pull that thread, Dane? People are just going to say, like, you're nuts. Why do you think the gathering is the best scenario? Like, do you really want to invite... I, I want to hear that. That feeds me. <laughs> I forgot. Right. Yeah, of course. The cries, the cries of the of the of the morally wrong and and objectively wrong. I guess I don't know. All right. Well, yeah. Then then send us send us your input, listeners, about <laughs> how wrong Dane is. <laughs> All right. Well, until then, Dane and Dan are both signing off. Wherever you are in any of your scenarios, best of luck and try not to draw horribly. But I know you will. So yeah. prepare to die. I guess. <laughs>